Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharms.com forward slash podcasts for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Gino Martini, and I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I'm delighted today to be joined by our CEO, Paul Bennett. And we're both delighted, aren't we, Paul, to have our special guest, Ian McCubbin, OBE, who is the Vaccines Task Force Manufacturing Lead. And Ian is an old colleague of mine from GSK, who played a very active role on the Vaccines Task Force, and of course, he's a pharmacist. Ian, how are you, sir? Are you well? I'm great, Gino. Thanks, and lovely to hear your voice. It's good to have a chance to talk to you. Paul, I'll hand over to you. Ian, a really warm welcome. Thank you again for joining us for one of Gino's fantastic podcasts. I'm going to launch straight in, if I I might. You have a really interesting background that I'm sure our listeners will be intrigued to hear more about. I wonder if you could inform our members about your career to date as a pharmacist working in industry. Thanks, Paul, and and nice to meet you. So, yes, yes, I am a pharmacist. I studied in Heriot-Watt University in Edinburgh in 1970s, actually. I graduated in 78. You know, looking back on it, I probably would do it all again. I do think that the pharmacy degree and the life in Edinburgh served me very well for the future. I met my wife there, Barbara. She's a pharmacist too. And I'll be honest, none of the rest of my career would have happened if it hadn't been for Barbara. She held the family together and uh, allowed me to pursue a career. And she managed a good career herself. But I originally wanted to be a clinical pharmacist. I chose, though, to do my pre-reg with a company called Organon in a place called Newhouse, which is about halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. And so six months there and six months in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. And um, I actually really loved the industrial experience, which is the first six months placement and decided actually that I'd give up on the clinical pharmacy part and give industry a run. And that began a quite a lengthy career, really, in industry, first with Organon and then with a, a company called Glaxo, who were based at Barnard Castle, famous for Dominic Cummings visits, etc. But it was a great opportunity for me to go into a big company. And, you know, once you're in a big company, you kind of get on a bit of an escalator and your career sort of moves at the pace that the company wants you to move at. So quite a long time with Glaxo and Glaxo Welcome, always in manufacturing or supply chain or something like that. But at the time of the Glaxo Welcome SmithKline Beecham merger, I decided I would leave and I went into generics industry with a company called IVAX or Norton Healthcare. If you're really old, you remember Norton Healthcare, founded by one of the original generic leaders, I suppose, a guy called Isaac Kay, who's also a pharmacist, interestingly enough. But I was there for about three years and then moved to another generics company called Merck Generics. And then strangely and unplanned and about 2007, I returned to GlaxoSmithKline and stayed there until 2017, where I was a senior vice president in manufacturing. So I wasn't quite ready to hang up my boots in 2017, and I fell in love with cell therapy and gene therapy. And just because of the transformational medical benefits and the potential for the UK economy, and I've been doing sort of consultancy work in that area since. And I've become the chairman of a company called Rosalind Cell Therapies based in Edinburgh, which is a great little company involved in cell therapy work. And then that kind of led me into the task force. A bit of a long answer, but that's the sum up of it, Paul. As a pharmacist myself, I'm sure many will also recognise a number of those names there and will be really interested in the work you're currently doing around cell therapies. 
I wonder if you could extrapolate this a little bit further for us. How have your pharmacy roots helped you, do you think, throughout your career and not just sort of the last year or the immediate years over that duration? Well, I think pharmacy is vastly underrated in terms of a grounding for industrial people like myself. And sadly, I bump into fewer as time goes by. But the reason I think it's a fantastic qualification is it really does give you a grounding in everything from discovery all the way through to the patient. And that's perhaps the strongest thing is the patient orientation. But it's got all the legal stuff surrounding it. It's got all the regulatory stuff surrounding it. So it's perfect, actually, for a career in industry and especially in the manufacturing environment. I don't know how much the curriculum has changed, but hopefully the basic tenants are all still there. But you can talk to any deep discipline in the industry. And if you've got your wits about you, you can have a starter for 10 conversation because you get it and then you can deepen it if required. You know, when you do your pre-reg and you make up the methotrexate solution in the pharmacy in the morning and you take it up to the ward in the afternoon and you see it disappearing into somebody, all of a sudden sterility of product and quality assurance actually really, really means something for you. So I think that sort of real deep feel for patients, safety of medicines, quality of medicines and the impact on health resilience is a very important thing that you get from pharmacy that I don't think you get in many other disciplines. That's really interesting to hear. I'm so with you in terms of how important the science aspect is in terms of the, the grounding within a pharmacist's education, but also then the number of avenues that it opens up as a pharmacist. And I think you've just illustrated where that can take you. What was your role in the task force, Ian? You mentioned before, how did you actually get involved? Well, it's quite a long story, you know, but in the interest of time, I'll do the abbreviated version. But If you can remember back to Christmas time, just into the new year in 2020, there was stuff going on in the news and we're beginning to all see something happening in China. And I got interested and maintained involved in what we call them advanced therapies, but cell and gene therapy. And through that, I became involved quite closely with the bio industry association. So this is an association mainly for companies, academics, SMEs, the whole nine yards in bioprocessing uh, because of the cell and gene therapy. And Steve Bates, who's the CEO of the Bio Industry Association, was getting quite a lot of questions from Patrick Valance in the main, but from government in general. This is around about end of January, beginning of February, about how on earth can we make an RNA vaccine or a viral vectored vaccine in the UK in the event that either Imperial College who were working on RNA or Oxford University, who are working on the viral vector vaccine, if they're successful, how on earth are we going to make that in the UK? So I worked with Steve. We had our very first meeting on the 10th of February. I remember it quite well. It was a Monday night. And myself and Steve Bates, a fantastic lady called Nettie England, who works for the BIA, and two or three other people who are involved in the bioprocessing industry in the UK. So a guy called James Miskin from Oxford Biomedica and Stephen Ward from the Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult and Peter Coleman from Cobra Biologics up in Stafford. We just started to get talking about how on earth do we do this? And cut a long story short, we surveyed the BIA members and within a week, We had quite a lot of detail about the capability in the UK that did allow us to manufacture probably both of those vaccines. So that's the sort of how it started, you know, which is actually well before the formal government vaccines task force, which started in around May. 
So effectively, you looked at what was available in the UK and using your judgment as a pharmacist and your experience as an industrial pharmacist, you were able to pick and choose and try and match capability and capacity. Is, is that what you guys did? Yeah, pretty much. So if we just take Cobra Biologics and Oxford Biomedica, they're both able to do gene therapy products. And a gene therapy product is pretty much identical nowadays to a viral vectored vaccine, just a different vector, a different viral vector. So we realized quite quickly that their facilities could be repurposed. And we were also able to pull in the suppliers of the filtration equipment, the raw materials, et cetera, and be able to put together quite a good plan. The mRNA was really interesting, you know, because there wasn't such a thing as a registered mRNA vaccine at that point in time. So everybody was quite sceptical of whether that could happen. But lo and behold, the Centre for Process Innovation up in Darlington had been working on RNA product for about seven or eight months prior to this. So, you know, you could retrospectively write this, you know, as if it was a fantastic plan. But... The real ingredient here was we had an an amazingly willing community of scientific companies and people, and we had a network that had a bit more capability than we thought. So we were able to work out something that got us started. I think that's been one of the key themes, hasn't it, with the pandemic? The huge, I I use this word unprecedented, but it was unprecedented, degree of cooperation and collaboration between industries, old rivals that became collaborators, and the connection between academia and industry has been an amazing, hasn't it, Ian? Yeah, 100%, Gino. And people talk about the holy trinity of academia, government and industry. I'm not sure holy trinity is the right word, but it does need all three of these components. And if you only have two of them, it doesn't work. So we have got some amazing academics in this country. We've got some really good emerging science companies in the advanced therapy field. And we actually had a very collaborative government that understood and needed and wanted something to happen. So they enabled funding really quickly for this, which allowed us to make progress. So you had this pick list, I suppose, of capability. So what happened next? What what crystallised the, the formation of ETF? What was the tipping point? There was a programme last night on Channel 4 called Jabbed, you know, and I would recommend to any of the listeners, they might want to take a look at that if they can get it on catch up. But it was Patrick Valence who recognised that we could do something with the manufacturing base in the UK, but it needed a bit more oomph. And it was around about end of April, beginning of May, that Kate Bingham was asked to become the leader of the Vaccines Task Force. And Kate is just an amazing person. She got the full support of the government, which allowed us to step this up a level. And it became a more formal government task force as opposed to an industry task force. And Kate put in some great people like Clive Dix. Um, Steve Bates was involved from the industrial background, who we mentioned earlier. And, and also Devia Chada Manek, who came from the National Institute of Health Research, which was really, really important because it brought the whole clinical element, as well as Kate was able to get some amazing Ministry of Defence civil servants who were much more used to delivery. And, you know, that's when everything really got momentum, because all of a sudden the industry expertise and the government machinery cogs completely meshed. And from about May through to September, October, we were really moving on, not just trying to create manufacturing capability in the UK, but look at all the vaccines that were around the world. We had Clive as a guest on the podcast series twice now. Only yesterday, I was doing some jabbing myself in our local centre. And I want to give a shout out to Deepak Vyas, who's a pharmacist. I think he's done about 10,000 people since he started in December. He's an amazing guy. 
But one of the patients said to me yesterday, is, uh, is this the one that's minus 60 degrees Celsius? Who would have thought cold chain supply would become a comment over, over breakfast tables all over the world? But it effectively did. And that takes me on to my next question. How do you guys operate? I mean, you, you must have used industrial specialists in order to be able to review these different portfolios of vaccines to try and get the job done. I've mentioned a few names, you know, but behind all of these people, there was a whole cadre of other willing volunteers. And, and, you know, in all of this, not once did anybody say, how much will I get paid to do this? And, you know, what sort of hours do I need to work? It was only, look, just tell me what you need us to do and we'll do it. So, for example, Clive and I had a, a great due diligence team that looked at all of the vaccines. So these are people with deep clinical knowledge, people with a lot of chemistry, manufacturing and controls knowledge, you know, the whole sort of pharmaceutical part of it. And also I had a lot of people behind me, you know, at one point it was probably about more than 100 volunteers in some way helping put together supply chains for these vaccines. And I think this is something that's great in the UK, Gino. So you and I know each other with our paths of cross, but the UK is small enough for this sector, this industry, for people to almost know everybody else. And yet we're big enough on the global stage to have an impact. So I think we've got a bit of a unique selling point in that respect that we can bring our community together and we can do things that certainly on this vaccines business we've been able to do probably as quick, if not quicker than anywhere else. So, you know, I've got a real picture of the community coming together, as, as you say, and, and specialists working together and drawing on on all of the resources from the military, government, etc. There's clearly a big success story for, for the UK, but also for pharmacy and pharmaceutical science in all of this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's currently on the agenda for the task force and what are you doing currently with regard to the work of the task force itself? So the big thing, Paul, that's been exercising the task force probably since the turn of the year has been variants and what's going to happen with variants. It's not that we in any way have felt that the rollout of the vaccines is done for the first time round because we've made good progress. But, you know, keeping these supply chains going has been really tough. And I take my hat off to AstraZeneca and to Oxford University. I will just mention this. All the people involved in that supply chain have worked so, so, so hard. They basically put their own lives on hold for nine months and they've done an amazing job. And I think they've had a pretty raw deal from some of the European press. But we know they've done a great job. They've saved loads and loads of lives. But the thing that's really been exercising this is what we're going to do with the vaccines. And second, how do we create the capability for the future? So the original objectives for the task force were threefold. One, can we get vaccines quickly for the UK population? Two, can we get vaccines that will help the global effort? And three, can we leave a legacy that will be better for the future? So we've been working on all three of those areas. But in the last month or two, it's been mainly on the international effort, the variant and on future resilience. We hear a lot, don't we, in the news at the moment about the threat of the variants and how important it is to encourage people to not be hesitant about taking the vaccine and but also exercising all the other precautions that are necessary and, and allow some space for, for the experts to get on and, and do the great work that they will need to do to protect us against these future variants. So I wish you well with all of that continued work. I wonder, Ian, if you might be able to touch on your thoughts about the pharmacy workforce contribution to the vaccination programme. I'm less close to this, Paul, but, you know, I do think that pharmacists for me, well, my wife was uh, vaccinated in a pharmacy in Northwood in northwest London. And Gino's just mentioned himself and, and the other guys who's done loads of vaccinations. I think 
that role, Paul, is a fantastic practical role that pharmacists perform very well. But I think this is also where the more general role of pharmacists is massive in the UK. You know, our uptake of vaccines has been incredibly high, you know, as good as any other country. And I do think the trust that the community has in their local pharmacists is very, very important in this and, and continuing to get that message out that the vaccination is something that's really valuable and important that people do get vaccinated. So I think there's a role continue for that. I don't know whether there is or isn't, Paul, a role for for pharmacists more strongly in some of the communities that have taken up less vaccines. And I wonder if that is somewhere that that maybe the pharmaceutical society could help the coverage from, let's say, more hesitant vaccine communities. As you know, I'm, I've told you already, I'm quite a proud pharmacist, so I'm not going to you know, say anything in here that is anything other than positive about our profession. And I just think that we could do more to contribute for all the reasons we've talked about through this podcast. I wonder if I could ask you to use a bit of a crystal ball here and maybe think about pharmacy's role in, in maybe three to five years with this, what seems to be a, an inevitable ongoing challenge. Would you see pharmacists getting involved in booster campaigns, for example? Oh, I would have hoped so. I had my flu jag this year in a local pharmacy in Gerald's Cross and think that pharmacists play a massive role. So if this becomes an endemic disease and we require an annual booster or some kind of two yearly booster or something, I think it'd be great for pharmacists to be involved in that. And I do think that continuing with the whole premise of the role of the pharmacist in the community as a a point of contact with the public is a very, very uh, critical role for the pharmacist to play. So I hope that we'll be able to do more of that and perhaps more in the broader education around some of the risk benefits of all of types of medical treatment, because even me was trained in hundreds of years ago when I did my degree. That role in administration, education, a bit around myth busting, being a point of access feels to fit really neatly doesn't it with the role of pharmacists and pharmacy teams Gino I know you've got a a, an interest as well in in the manufacturing base do you think the pandemic has shown that we do need a stronger manufacturing base and clinical development capability oh do you know I 100% think we need a, a stronger manufacturing presence in the UK not just for vaccines but for medicines in general And, you know, having lived through the 80s and seeing the boom of pharmaceutical industry in the UK through the 80s and early 90s, and then a consolidation in the 90s through to the 2000s, and then a decline probably through mid-2000 till present as pharmaceutical supply chains became global and manufacturing tended to migrate to lower tax locations. I think this has demonstrated the need for I don't think you can be 100% self-reliant on this, Gino, but I think it's important strategically for a nation to have enough health resilience that it can cope with unusual global events. And well, actually what I've moved on to now in the task force is much more focus on the onshoring. One of the things that has happened in the last few months is that I think due to the success of the vaccine development regulatory process, clinical trials in the UK is pricked up a lot of interest in pharmaceutical companies. And we've talked to a lot of them over recent weeks. And what companies have found very interesting in the UK is their ability to do clinical trials, have the rolling review with the MHRA, and to be, you know, first of in, in the whole regulatory process. I do think that we've got a unique opportunity because of our proactivity of MHRA 
they know where the line is between compliance, but also they know how to be innovative. And they've demonstrated that in the last uh, nine months. So the industry is interested again in the UK, whereas they hadn't been. And the government has an interest in this too, Gino. So I think that there's a good chance that if we can work really hard over the next six months or so, that we can get more investment into the UK that will give us health resilience. But we have already invested in this industry. And, you know, one of the reasons that we could produce the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine was due to the investment the government had put into cell and gene therapy in the previous five or six years. So it definitely works. We had no idea when the government invested in cell and gene therapy that was ever going to be used for vaccines. But the fact of the matter is technology nowadays is so adjacent that you can build a facility for cell and gene therapy and it can be repurposed for vaccines. It's almost uh, instantly flippable. So we've learned an interesting lesson from that, you know. And if you just look top to bottom from the UK, we've invested a lot in a company called Valneva in Scotland, which will be able to make an inactivated viral vaccine, which is one of the few places in Western Europe that will be able to do that. That will be there for many, many years to come. We've invested in other facilities too that will give them resilience. And we've, we are creating a facility in Oxford called the Vaccines Manufacturing Innovation Centre. So this is kind of like the cell and gene therapy catapult in Stevenage, but it will be there to take small, medium-sized enterprises, academics, difficult projects, and innovate them into future vaccines. So we're creating a good bit of capability and infrastructure. And what I'm hoping is that we'll be able to attract two or three or four pharma companies to come in and take advantage of the ecosystem that we are creating in the UK and get the energy and the machinery from some of the pharmaceutical companies that will change this game. That's really quite heartening, isn't it, to get all the best practices or the, the optimised ways of working and actually trying to keep that advantage and drive innovation forward. So, of course, we've got a very good clinical research base in the UK as well. Ian, it sounds like you've done so much there. It's so impressive and, and so entertaining and interesting to hear you talk about the great work that you've done. What's next? Is there any more you could possibly think of achieving? I, I'm not sure that would be an easy thing to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. What's next for Ian? Well, if you don't mind, I'll use the time to answer a different question if I can. <laughs> so I'd like to ask for you guys help a little bit on this. So by way of answering what's next for me, I uh, studied pharmacy, as we talked about, and I did a pre-registration six months in industry, six months in hospital. And I see the value that a pharmacist can bring in industry. I would love it if the pharmaceutical society could look at a way to refresh and energize the industrial uh, routes for careers for pharmacists. And as the industry has shrunk a little bit, it's been harder and harder to find pre-registration roles for kids, young people coming out of their graduation. And I think that's a bit of a, an issue that we need to fix. Actually, Paul, if I can help you with that, I would help you. So What's next for Ian could be help you to get find a way to get more pre-regis into industry. But what's next for me? I intend to stay with the the vaccines task force to get this onshore and on a bit further. So I've I've committed until the end of June that I'll carry on with that, which isn't enough time to get stuff onshore, but it's enough time to get some stuff moving really quickly because one thing we did learn from the task force is if you put your mind to it, you can make things happen really quick. And I don't know what I'm going to do after that. I, I haven't. I played two games of golf last year, which makes it rather expensive golf for me. 
<laughs> being a Scotsman, that is no good news. <laughs> so I'm hoping I might get a little bit more golf. And we've got two lovely little grandchildren and another one on the way. So I think what I'd quite like to do, Paul, is maybe put some of my energy into helping these little guys be the best big guys that they can turn into. Um, that would be pretty fulfilling. I think apart from that, we'll just wait and see what happens on the next stage. Ian, I sense uh, if you ever wanted to pursue it, a career in politics as well. T- turning a question into a, back into a question was fantastic. I, we'd love to work with you on how we might be able to make that happen. It, it's really important. The whole focus for the RPS on early careers is really important. And there's such a, a myriad of opportunity, as you so eloquently described to us today, for those who graduate with a degree in pharmacy It can take them in so many different directions, and that is what the UK absolutely needs. So we're right with you. Thanks so much for your time today. I think on behalf of the pharmacy profession, Paul, I think we want to thank Ian for his massive contribution of the Vaccines Task Force, all the things that you've done. It's actually quite privileged when you do the vaccination, realise that I've actually known somebody who made a pivotal role. Thank you so much for your hard work. I look forward to to seeing you again, Ian, when we can actually maybe have a beer over the bar sometime. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.